Well, good evening and uh, welcome. Uh, whether you're here with us in the room or online, it has been uh, quite a messy day. And I appreciate some of you braving the elements to come out. And uh, let's pray and we're going to jump right into our Bible study in the book of Hosea. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather around your word and to know that uh, we can lean on you in all circumstances of life, that you are the everlasting God who can be trusted and who cares about our every need. And Father, we pray that you will be glorified in our lives as we look to you for our strength. Uh, we continue to pray uh, for our church family and the uh, different ministries and things that we're trying to do right now as we are moving forward. Uh, we also pray uh, for the ongoing uh, circumstance that our uh, country finds itself in with uh, the health uh, issues. And uh, we pray for all who are negatively affected by it and just pray that you would continue to give us uh, strength and health as we move forward. And as we focus tonight on your word in the book of Hosea, remind us of uh, these important spiritual principles to apply to our lives uh, that uh, we might be faithful and honor you in all things. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to uh, turn to Hosea chapter 8 if you have a Bible with you. Uh, you want to make your way there. And the message tonight is entitled, The Dangers of Sowing the Wind. The Dangers of Sowing the Wind. Uh, in Hosea, we find a case study of a rebellious people. Uh, we also find the love of God and God's continual call to return to him and come back to him in repentance and renewal. Uh, Hosea ministered in what we refer to as the northern kingdom of Israel for about 40 years in the 8th century B.C. Uh, the themes of idolatry, spiritual failure, and moral corruption were everywhere among the people. So God brings to them, through the prophet, a message about judgment. Uh, but with that message of judgment also came a message of hope, that if they would look to him, that they could find their hope in him. And as we've noted, as we've gone along in this book, uh, Hosea and Gomer's marriage symbolizes the relationship between God and his people. God's message was that he was offended by the unfaithfulness of his people. The unfaithfulness of his people was because of their sin and their rebellion against God. And then ultimately all of this points us to Jesus, who is the ultimate deliverer. He's the one who's the bridegroom who rescues his wife, the church. As we looked at Hosea chapter 7, what we found there were comparisons. There's some basic elements of life that were symbols of daily life, and God used those symbols through the prophet Hosea to draw some spiritual comparisons. Each one of them illustrates for us the sad moral and spiritual condition of the people, and each of them has a current application, as we noted in Hosea 7. Now, what is God looking for? God is looking for people who have a consecrated heart, uh, people with genuine faith. Uh, God is uh, merciful and gracious to his people in that he provides every benefit of the doubt and repeated opportunities to repent and to receive his forgiveness. And as we come to chapter 8, what's in full view in chapter 8 is the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. 
Now, we're familiar with that, at least in the way of terminology. Uh, you reap what you sow is an idea that we find that's really strong in the Bible. It is presented in the Bible both as positive and negative. Galatians 6 and verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So we find that contrast in the New Testament that if you sow to the Spirit, uh, you reap everlasting life. But if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And there's a real spiritual principle at work. If you sow to the good, you're going to reap good. If you sow to the bad, you're going to reap bad. Proverbs 1 and verse 31 says, They will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. Proverbs 22 and verse 8 says, Those who plant injustice will harvest disaster. Now, God shows mercy and grace to the undeserving. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So even in the midst of all of this judgment and because of all of the rebellion of the people and all the darkness that followed with it, God still says, I'm going to have mercy on my people. I'm going to bless my people if they will turn to me. One commentator said it's because of the mercy and compassion of God that we can have a home in heaven despite our sin. We sowed iniquity and corruption, and Jesus Christ reaped our punishment on the cross. May he be praised forever. Now, I want to work our way through this passage tonight, but before we do that, I want to draw out uh, the emphasis, the key that I think is found in verse 7, where the scripture says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Now, here's the basic point. Everything we do has consequences. All of life, the decisions we make, the actions that we undertake, the things that we do in this life, all of that has consequences, either for the good or for the bad. And the warning is that those who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind. The good things we do have consequences. The sinful things that we do have consequences. But Hosea is telling us even more. Many times, consequences end up being greater than the action itself. Just as a whirlwind is much greater than just the wind. We know that things can start off small and they can turn into something that is great. In a good sense, you take an acorn that ends up being a mighty tree. Jesus spoke of the seed that fell on the good soil and produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 fold greater than the original seed. Now we see this very practically played out in the lives of individuals and families. Uh, Joel Belts wrote an article in World Magazine entitled Flunking Kindergarten, and he told a story of eating in a restaurant, obviously pre-corona, and there were two couples with four children in the booth behind him. One of the fellows was uh, telling, uh, altogether too triumphantly, Belt said, about a visit he and his teenage daughter had made to the Target department store. He said, you wouldn't believe it. The checkout clerk must have been terribly new or terribly dumb. We had eight pairs of slacks, six shirts, 
and a few other items. And even though she ran them all by the scanner, almost none of them registered. She didn't even notice and ended up charging us something like $17 for the whole cart full, when it probably should have been like 10 times that amount. And he said everyone's laughter seemed to be taken as approval. He said, talking about sowing the wind with those kids there, those kids are going to grow up thinking that it's okay to rip people off. The second fellow reported on his summer of coaching a little league team, the man who was sitting there with his family, and he said what started off as a miserable season turned around when his team was able to recruit an outstanding young shortstop whose family had just moved into the area from Costa Rica. There was a problem at first, he said, because the boy was 12 years old and the rules for that league set the maximum age at 11. No matter, he had a lawyer friend who knew just what needed to be done to get the right paperwork and the overage shortstop had made their season. Wow, I heard one of the children respond, that's pretty cool. Again, talk about sowing the wind. What do you think about uh, those kids and what they learn from that. You can win as long as you manipulate the rules. And then he went on and he said one of the wives then watched, launched into a tale about her teenage daughter who had uh, not been able to get into the dorm she wanted at the state university where she enrolled as a freshman. She said apparently enrollment was just way beyond what they expected, the mother said. But Amanda, she reported with a bit of pride in her vo voice, is not one to give up. Her boyfriend already had a room in that same dorm, and since there was some mix-up about his roommate coming back in the fall, Amanda just moved in with him. Again, talk about sowing the wind. What do you think those children thought about life and the sanctity of marriage and relationships and so on? And I share that by way of illustration to say that while God was speaking to ancient Israel through the prophet Hosea, all of these things have application to our lives because when we sow to the wind, we're going to reap the whirlwind. We're going to get greater consequences even than what we've undertaken if we're not careful. So the first warning tonight is do not misplace your worship. Do not misplace your worship. Now let's pick up reading in Hosea chapter 8 and verse 1 where he says, Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Uh, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Verse 5, your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Do not misplace your worship. Scripture says here, set the trumpet to your mouth. Now, from a biblical perspective, trumpets were used to assemble God's people for important things and for worship, and also to call them to battle. God commanded the trumpet to sound uh, to gather the Assyrians for the coming judgment against Israel. Why was he to do that? Because they had transgressed the covenant 
that they made with God. Now, when that happened, the scripture says that they would cry out to God, but we know you. We know you, God. But you see, the cry that they would issue would not be a sincere cry because they had rejected the good. They said it with their mouths, but they did not really know God. Israel had forgotten her maker by transgressing the covenant. They had rebelled against God's law. And when God would sound the trumpet and call the instrument of judgment to come, they would say, but we know you, Lord. And yet they didn't know him at all. They asserted that they knew him, but their lives were absent. Uh, Their obedience in their lives were absent from honoring and following after God. Now, I don't know if that uh, sounds familiar to something we might find in the New Testament, but I want to draw the parallel to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22 and 23. The words of Jesus, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, what was the point that Jesus was making? He was referring to a verbal confession, which is vital, but in and of itself, it is not enough. The warning is about people who say one thing, but don't really mean it. The warning is about a super, superficial uh, acclamation of what God has said, but no heart affiliation with who God is and faith in his word and in his son. And this applies to people who say, Lord, Lord, and their spiritual life has no evidence from day to day. Uh, they, he says in verse four, they set up kings, but not God. They made idols for themselves, but the calf is rejected and will be broken to pieces. So what he's talking about here is the worship of false gods and also the false worship of the one true living God. Let me say that again. He's talking about the worship of false gods and also the false worship of the one true living God. I'm reminded of the account in the book of Exodus, long about chapter 32, where the Israelites went off the rails and essentially asked that gods would be made that would go before them. Moses had gone up to meet with God, if you remember. The people grew impatient. They weren't willing to wait. And they're down at the bottom of the mountain, and they're wanting something to happen. And we read how Aaron, in response to that, attempted to redefine the act of worship to something that it should not have been. In fact, he invoked the name of God in order to consecrate a feast that was celebrating and presenting a golden calf. And God saw the whole thing as an abomination of worship, as disobedience. It was the worship of something else other than the one true living God. It was a misplacement of worship in the wrong direction. And when Moses found the people worshiping the golden calf at the foot of the mountain, the Bible says that he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder. 
He then scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Exodus 32 and verse 20. And when Moses recounted the act, he explained that he threw the dust of the idol into a nearby brook in Deuteronomy chapter 9. So the burning, the crushing, and the grinding of the idol represented the judgment of God against sin. And I think Moses' symbolic act became a paradigm for the subsequent acts of righteousness of the kings that did want to honor God. Because they went through these repeated cycles where they would get way off track. And then at times they would repent and they would come back. But often that coming back was not fully. And it's a reminder along the way that it's so easy to misplace our worship. It's so easy to to get our hearts going in the wrong direction. And in the covenant, God had elected Israel to be his people. He had chosen them to be uh, his own special people. He had given them the law as a guide in the covenant relationship with God. And yet, when they transgressed that covenant, what that was was nothing more than stepping over the line of obedience to the line of disobedience, sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Verse 6 says, the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Again, the hammer's going to drop. Judgment is coming. Do not misplace your worship. Do not worship the wrong king. And that leads me to the next point, the next warning. Do not misplace your faith. Do not misplace your faith. Let's pick back up reading verse 7. Uh, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Uh, the stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they're among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. For they've gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations... Now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Now what did Israel do? When they got in trouble, they had this tendency to look to other nations for their help. And in this instance, they had gone up to Assyria looking for help. Well, why would you misplace your faith and put it in other people or in other nations, rather than in the one true living God. So what Hosea does here is he anticipates the captivity on Israel. In the verse that we open with tonight, in verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Uh, This proverb really establishes the irrevocable connection between present actions and future judgment. The order that God has established in the world is that what we do has consequences. And he gives an interesting uh, comparison here. If it should produce, aliens uh, would swallow it up. Now, as a further evidence that nothing works without the Lord, the pitiful remains of the whirlwind even would be swallowed up, and the nation itself would be swallowed up with the Assyrian, with the Assyrian invasion. Israel was going to lose its distinctiveness because it would mix among the Gentiles. 
The nation was like a vessel that lost its beauty, it lost its shine, it lost its luster. The supernatural blessing and the providential advantage that the people had would be gone. There would be nothing precious or notable or desirous left. And it was all because they misplaced their faith. They gambled on the influential friendship of Assyria, and it ultimately proved disastrous. Now, Hosea compares this to the solitary wandering of the wild donkey in verse 9. He says it's like a wild donkey alone by itself. And the image shifts and says that the people are essentially like a prostitute who have sunk so low that they're having to pay themselves and selling themselves to these heathen nations. And then there's a further shift of the image where the metaphor changes from the prostitute to this vacillating foreign policy that they've undertaken um, because of the burden of the king of princes. And we find this figure of being gathered in verse 10. And that's the idea of the judgment of God. Israel is going to be gathered like ripe fruit that's placed in a container there to waste away. And if you think about this in a real-life spiritual application for us, we would say that when Christians squander their faith and misplace their faith and put it in other things besides the one true living God, there are going to be consequences to that because God is going to withdraw his glory and his power from our lives. And the distinctiveness of what it means to be a Christian is that we, we belong to God. We belong to him. We are his people. We are his special possession. We have been bought. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ on the cross. And because of that, we're chosen and called and set apart to be vessels for Christ and if we're not careful, we can start putting our faith in other things. Maybe our faith in our possessions or other people that we're depending on or some type of influence that we might have in life, maybe because of the possessions or the position that we have. And all these things lead us down a path that none of us really want to be on if we thought about the consequences for it of dishonoring God. Do not misplace your faith. And then the third part of this is do not misplace your offerings. Do not misplace your offerings. I'll pick back up reading in verse 11. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. Now we'll come back to that. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Now, they built altars for sin, but they became altars of sin. What's he talking about? Well, prescribed in their worship under the law were altars that were for 
the expiation of sins, in a sense, of recognizing their sin before God. The specific altars that are in view are those that were for the confession of sins that were committed in ignorance. You can read about it back in the book of Leviticus. The ritual is prescribed. It was what God, in part, wanted them to do in their worship under the law. According to the book of Kings, Jeroboam I, the first ruler of the newly seceded northern kingdom of Israel, established two sanctuaries to rival the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. This was off track to begin with because that's not what God wanted them to do, but at any rate, that's what he did. Dan, which was located along the northern border, and Bethel along the southern border that was actually not very far from Jerusalem. And he commissioned the construction of two golden calves. There was to be one at each one of those shrines, as though they had not already learned the lesson about the golden calves. He also ordained a new priesthood and a new pilgrimage festival on a date of his own choosing. These places are portrayed as active places of worship throughout the duration of the northern kingdom, and then even the case of Bethel after that as well. And what did they do? They provoked the anger of God. And there were wrongs that were connected with these altars. The first wrong was that it was in disobedience to what God ever said to do to begin with. So they were starting off in, in, in the wrong uh, pattern to begin with. But the second is what verse 11 tells us, that they actually became altars for sinning. They can't, became places where the people practiced sin and they actually, rather than drawing near to God, they separated themselves from God. And when they offered these sacrifices on these numerous altars, they did so not because they wanted to commune with God, but because they were wrapped up in these ways of worship that were not pleasing to God. And they got themselves in all kinds of trouble because of that. And did you know that we can worship and give offerings but if we're worshiping in the wrong way and it's not bringing glory to God, if it's bringing attention to ourselves or if it's serving self or serving our own fleshly desires or it's feeding our own motivations rather than out of obedience to the Lord, that that's a misplaced offering that you could possibly even doing, be doing something that was not wrong in and of itself, but even something that's done in the wrong way can be wrong. And if we're not careful, we can be guilty of the same thing. And I think the last verse just sums the whole deal up, even though we don't understand the intricacies of the rest of this in verse 14. It says this, For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities. And I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour his palaces. Friends, you're in a drastic circumstance if you forget your maker. The preacher of old, Alan Redpath, said, do we understand what it means to forget God? I'm not sure we do. It does not mean that God was put into the realm of oblivion 
Redpath said, you cannot forget God like that. Even in denying God, you are remembering him. Intellectually, we do not forget God. He says the word forgot here means Israel has mislaid his maker. If you forget something, it's out of your memory altogether. But if you mislay something or misplace something, you're completely aware of its existence. But as far as you're concerned, it's out of use. It's out of circulation. And when we shelve or file or misplace something, it becomes out of sight and out of mind. And when we do that with God, we file him away and we lose any consciousness of closeness to God and awareness of the presence of God. He did not remove himself from us. Rather, we removed ourselves from him. He's called us to communion with himself through faith in his son and obedience to his word. And yet we've decided that we're going to misplace our offerings or we're going to do as we please. And we know in our hearts that discerning and doing the will of God is part and parcel of a relationship with God. You cannot know God if your allegiance is to false gods or to yourself. If you place your ultimate security in other things, whatever that is, the flow of God's power is lost because you've now put yourself in a position where you're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I think that can happen to individuals. It can happen to a church. And it can certainly happen to a nation. Few people set out to extricate God from their lives. They simply often drift into it by a neglect of a vital relationship with God. And maybe in your life you need that sound of the trumpet to bring you to a place of revival and renewal. You see, our greatest enemy today is not Assyria. Our greatest enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we battle with. The first enemy of the world has one purpose, speaking of the world not in terms of the creation of God, but of the world system that is caught in darkness, that is running on an opposing track to God. The world system has one goal, and that's to crush the life out of your faith. And Christians are often transformed by the culture rather than transforming the culture. And we need to be sure that as we are immersed in the world around us, that we are in the world, but not of the world. That we're living in the midst of it, yet maintaining our passion for and our closeness to God. The second enemy is, is our flesh. When we speak of our flesh, we're not just talking about the tent of our body that we reside in, but we're talking about that sinful nature that still resides in us. And that's perhaps the most dangerous enemy of all because it is the enemy that is within the gate. And we are often our own worst enemies. And if we're not careful, we can not do what we know we should do 
and we can do what we know we should not do and lose the battle of the flesh and our effectiveness for the Lord. And then that third enemy being the devil himself who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, who seeks to take joy from us, who seeks to keep us from the path of God. And if we resist the devil, the Bible says that he will flee from us and we can live in the power of God. So let me ask you this. What do you sow in your life? What do our children see us sowing? Do they see people who strive to follow after Jesus Christ, who, who seek to be different, from the world? Or do they see people who are immersed in the culture and not very different from the world? Do they see a, a distinctiveness about us and that uh, is evidence that we're following after God? You see, what you sow, you will always reap. You will reap a harvest. And if you sow towards sin, that's what you're going to reap. You're going to reap destruction. But if you sow toward the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. It's not that we're working for our salvation, but it's evidence that we have been saved because of the work of God in our lives. But think about the impact that our sowing has on the generations to follow, on our children and our grandchildren. Are we sowing a strong and encouraging faith? Or are we sowing a weak and fragile and discouraging faith? I can't control what everybody else does around me. But we ought to be able to say, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's where we mark the line, and that's where we stand. Because we want to be careful about the reality here. Once again, in verse 7, if you sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. Sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. And then I'll make some closing remarks uh, before we close out our time here tonight. Father, we thank you for the word from Hosea. Um, it does hit uh, a bit like a hammer. It's, it's a hard message. But at the same time, uh, Lord, it, it's a reminder of just how faithful you are that your love and your mercy continually rises to the top. And God, we just say a collective thank you tonight that you're the God of grace and mercy that even at times when uh, we misplace our worship or we misplace our faith or we've misplaced our offerings that God, you're unchanging, and you're ready to, to bring us back to where we need to be. So I pray that uh, this study tonight would help us even to be an evaluation of where we are spiritually, and that in it, uh, we would have an even greater desire uh, to sow to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Lord, bless us the remainder of this night and the remainder of this week. Help us to honor you in all things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's going to conclude our service here tonight. I hope to see many of you out on Sunday. Uh, we've been blessed as we continue to gather. 
And we get a lot of space in the room, each of our services, and we're continuing to take all the different uh, precautions and things, and we're easing our way back in and some of our Bible Fellowship and Sprouts ministries, and just ask you to continue to pray and uh, be an encouragement to one another. Uh, Have a great rest of your week, and uh, we'll see you soon, Lord willing.